Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion titled, The Call of Cthulhu, The Development of Lovecraft's Mythos. California State University Sacramento professor, Tom Craybecker, moderates a panel consisting of Nathan Madison, a researcher at the American Civil War Center in Virginia, and author of the Eisner-nominated book, Anti-Foreign Imagery in American Pulps and Comics, John Hayfelly, author of A Look Behind the Derelict Mythos, Don Heron, editor of the scholarly landmark, The Dark Barbarian, and winner of the 2006 Black Circle Award for Lifetime Achievement in Robert E. Howard Studies, and popular culture scholar Rick Lay, who regularly appears as a panelist on podcasts produced by the Lovecraft e-zine. Pulpfests, Mike Chom co-introduces the panel. Lovecraft wrote The Call of Cthulhu in 1926, and uh, Farnsworth Wright turned it down, and we'll be talking about Farnsworth tomorrow uh, in our panel on Weird Tales. He turned it down, and then was, was it Howard? Oh, Don Donald. Uh, kind of talked Farnsworth uh, to take another look at it, and it was accepted and published in 1928. And uh, Lovecraft really didn't look back from there. Uh, he would continue uh, along a similar vein with other stories, like At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Out of Time, uh, Whisper in Darkness. Uh, and then he would ask uh, other writers to join in on the fun. And this is what he wrote in one of his letters. He called it his synthetic folklore. And he wrote, I think it is rather good fun to have this artificial mythology given an air of ver verisimil... How do I say that? Verisimilitude. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> By wide citation. It's easier to write than it is to say. By wide citation. And uh, as we know, some of the writers who responded to his requests, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Robert Block, Frank Belknap Long, Henry Putner, and uh, August Derleth, and, and many others. And he also wrote in another letter, all of our gang frequently allude to the pet demons of the others. Thus, Smith uses my Yog Sothoth, while I use his Sothagwa, I'm better at that than the other word, <laughs> I think. You got also, I don't know how to really, none of us do, do we? Also, I sometimes insert a devil or two in my own tales, uh, of my own in the tales I revise or ghostwrite for professional clients. Thus, our black pantheon requires an extensive felicity and pseudo-authoritativeness it would not otherwise get. Uh, time for these guys, Nathan Madison, John Hafeli, Don Heron, Rick Lay, and our moderator, Tom Kraybacher. I'll turn it over to them, and they can do their introductions. Uh, tomorrow, uh, John will be signing copies of his uh, landmark book, uh, A, Look the, uh, A Look Behind the Derelict Mythos, at my table, right inside the entrance to Pulp Fest. So look for him there at 1 o'clock, we talking about? One o'clock. Yep, one o'clock. So stop by, please. Oh, and, and it's cheaper than it's you can get cheap, it on Amazon. Yeah, cheaper than Amazon. Fifteen, a $20 book for 15 bucks. Okay, thank you, Mike. Let me briefly introduce the people on the panel. My name's Tom Cravacker, a longtime Pulp Fest member, written for things like Blood and Thunder, also a fan of Lovecraft like many of us are from back in the high school days. But my knowledge pales compared to what we have on the panel here. And uh, let me just introduce them briefly. Uh, next to me is Rick Lay, as in the potato chip, who uh, most of us probably know simply because he's a longtime member uh, attendee of Paul Fest. Uh, he's done lots of work. He's done uh, created chronologies, developed chronologies of Doc Savage and the Shadow. He's a participant on the, or he's contributed to the H.P. Lovecraft easing. 
and uh, he's on uh, the Lovecraft Easing Google Chat. Uh, next to him is Don Heron. Don Heron is known primarily, I think, for his work on Robert E. Howard, particularly his classic book, The Dark Barbarian, which in many ways is probably the first book on any pulp subject ever really to be introduced into the academic world by an academic press. He's followed it up with lots of articles and lots of work on Lovecraft, in which he has published and taught considerably, Howard Dashiell Hammett. Uh, next to him is John Haefeli. Uh, John Haefeli, also a longtime Lovecraftian, who's written on Lovecraft, Derelith, and particularly the history of Arkham House. And his book, A Look Behind the Derelith Mythos, which Mike has just referred to, is probably one of the most important books in Lovecraft criticism to come out in the past half dozen years or so easily. And then at the end is Nathan Madison, who we also know from Pulp Fest, or some of us do. He's been on panels here before. He's published in Ed Hulse's Blood and Thunder. Uh, his uh, probably most important contribution has been his book, Any Foreign Imagery in American Pulps and Comics, 1920 to 1960. And an interest in H.P. Lovecraft has also been a part of uh, his background as well. Uh, what we're going to do is just have an open discussion. We'll toss out really, they'll sound like questions, but they're just talking points to get things rolling. And at the end, we'll end a few minutes early for Q&A. And let me start by asking John to address really something that's probably <laughs> the most fundamental thing of this discussion, which is, since we're looking at the evolution of the Cthulhu mythos, asking to explain the difference between what has commonly in recent years come to be known as the Lovecraft mythos versus what we generally refer to as the Cthulhu mythos. So, John. That's a pretty big question. <laughs> I'll see if I can answer it. Um, for many, many years after H.P. Lovecraft died and people started to write about the Cthulhu mythos, um, Sometimes they were writing about Lovecraft's work exclusively, and sometimes they were writing about all the different works that other people were doing along with what Lovecraft was doing, which became known as the Cthulhu Mythos. But when you look at some of the criticism and you read it, the titles will confuse you. You'll be reading about the Lovecraft Mythos, but you're really talking about the Cthulhu Mythos and vice versa. As early as 1944, when August Jonath wrote a memoir, he actually says in there that he's talking about the multi-author Cthulhu mythos, although he's talking a lot about H.P. Lovecraft because Lovecraft had so much to do with it and the book was a memoir about Lovecraft, it's still the broader topic that he was talking about. What's happened in recent years, and it's been kind of a breakthrough, is that, that uh, just almost as a shorthand, people are using the term uh, derelict mythos to talk about August Derelict's unique contribution to the system and uh, the Smithos or the Smith mythos or the Lovecraft mythos to talk about the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. Uh, and in that case, we're just talking about what H.P. Lovecraft did. The other interesting thing to say about it is that the uh, Lovecraft mythos is considerably broader and larger than the Cthulhu mythos. The Cthulhu mythos was a later development and the authors took it, that were all working on it, took it in a certain direction, whereas the Lovecraft mythos uh, it all ties together and it starts with his earliest work and really from his poetry. In fact, as of this year, the Cthulhu mythos is 100 years old. If you go back to the very beginning, it's, it's 100 years ago in 1916 when he wrote The Poet's Nightmare, I think, with that middle section, which is a very cosmic poem. It's really a wonderful, short expression of the mythos. Um, Lovecraft didn't create this out of whole cloth. I mean, he did, and it's his ideas, but he was certainly influenced and drew upon other authors and events of his time. And Rick, you've done a lot of work on this. Can you speak to that in creating his own mythos or his own ideas? Well, one writer who, uh, well, first of all, he got the idea from a pantheon of uh, multiple deities from Lord Dunsany in the Dreamland stories. And before he did the Mesos stories, he did these fantasies set in Dreamland. Uh, 
and he was developing characters like Adathoth, the blind idiot god, and Nihilothotep, his messenger. And eventually they would be kind of cons uh, assigned to the Cthulhu, what came to be known as the Cthulhu mythos. Now his early influences, besides Dunsany, uh, Ambrose Bierce is a major influence. Now he somewhat gets overlooked because Ambrose Bierce wrote a series of stories which influenced both H.P. Lovecraft and Robert W. Chambers. And Robert W. Chambers wrote a famous book called The King in Yellow, which some of you may know from True Detective or some of you may read independently. And for a long while it was misunderstood that the Necronomicon was influenced by Robert W. Chambers, The King in Yellow, because it was so similar. But when you read the letters of Lovecraft, you saw he created the Necronomicon around 1920, and he didn't read The King in Yellow until 1927. But the reason for the similarities was Ambrose Bierce. Bierce wrote a story called Inhabitant of Carcosa, which is about an Arabian scribe named Halley, who, uh, and the, the rest of the story concerns a, an inhabitant of a ruined city in Arabia coming back to life. Lovecraft introduces Abdul Hazred, the author of the Necronomicon, in a story called The Nameless City. So we have an Arab scribe, and, they, and like Halley, he writes about death and resurrection. And we have then the, uh, all the inhabitants of that city coming back to life. And there are some other similarities. Uh, in uh, another way, an acknowledgment that Beers influenced the Necronomicon, which was Lovecraft's book of black magic, was in the, um, the, the festival in which another fictional book by, created by Ambrose Bierce, Marvels of Old Science, or Marvels of Science rather, appears alongside the Necronomicon. Thank you. Um, Nathan, uh, one of your interests has been not so much, uh, not just the literary influences on Lovecraft, but the cultural and social and political environment of its time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that influences or shows up in his writing? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that may just be the cultural historian in me, and I may be looking into it more than I should be. But I've always seen a lot of his, uh, particularly the Cthulhu mythos uh, stories, to be kind of an extension of the stuff he was writing about in his uh, amateur journalism work. Um, a lot of the political, a lot of the economic things. Um, one thing... Uh, that I always that kind of struck me, and other people have mentioned it too, is that he seems to write about the the races that he's, that he's talking about, the old ones or the great the great ones and whatnot. Um, their political and social economic structures are kind of the ideals that he expressed in a lot of his amateur journalism writings about what he thought would be best for America uh, and and the world for that part. Um, and I, I think going forward, a lot of the a lot of the guys who followed kind of creating, expanding on these mythos stories after he was gone, I think they didn't really follow that aspect. I think they were kind of going along with the, the strange and the, the weird kind of aspect, weird fiction that, he, that, he, that they're known for. But the political and the economic ideas that he put in his stories, um, I, don't, I don't think they followed them a whole lot. But I think they're a big influence on what he was writing and why he was writing it in a way. What about other writers, contemporary writers, who were, through correspondence, largely became uh, friends and, in many ways, influences on Lovecraft uh, in the development of his own ideas? Uh, Don, you actually knew some of these people, um, oh, okay. at least at the time. Oh, yeah, I, I've met some, but one of them, when they were mentioning uh, Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft wrote that in 1926 sent it to, with all expectations it would be accepted because he'd had previous stories accepted at Weird Tales, and Farnsworth Wright bounced it. <laughs> and so Lovecraft's kind of stumbling because this should have been published it, it, today, The Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu Mythos, obvious instant classic, and it was rejected. And uh, what happened was uh, it would circulate in the, the, their, uh, you know, a circle of friends uh, and correspondence. And Donald Wandry uh, from St. Paul, Minnesota, he was 
17 or 18, in 1927, he hitchhiked to Providence, Rhode Island, spent about two or three weeks hanging out with Lovecraft. I just found a letter from Lovecraft to uh, E. Hoffman Price where uh, Lovecraft tells, e. and I met E. Hoffman Price too, where he tells uh, Price that Wanderai is the only person, this is 19, so this is 1931-32. Lovecraft dies, what is it, March of 1937. Okay, so this is this late in his life and his career as, as pretty much everyone knows it. And while he was visiting, Wanderai was then the only person other than Lovecraft who had ever read The Case of Charles Dexter Ward and The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, neither of which had been typed. They were just in the, the original deal. So after that visit, Wanderai hitchhikes back to St. Paul, stops off in Chicago, drops into the offices of Weird Tales, and essentially tricks Farnsworth Wright into buying the Call of Cthulhu. He says, wow, I've just been visiting Lovecraft. He's got this great story called The Call of Cthulhu. Wow. I mean, everybody would go nuts if they read that. And Wright nudged, <laughs> picked it up, and it was published finally in Weird Tales in 1928 for the first time. And uh, I'll do more later. Yeah. I don't want to do the whole thing. <laughs> Rick, uh, what about the ideas of other writers? We talk about the Cthulhu mythos or Lovecraft mythology, but he was not alone in creating his own uh, mythic worlds, if you will. Right, well, Robert e. Robert e. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith were, in a sense, creating their own mythologies involving lost continents and ancient civilizations. Robert E. Howard, of course, had the King Cole stories, the Brian McMorn stories, the Solomon Kane stories, and then Conan, of course. And they're all interconnected in what you may almost call a Hyborian mythology in a strange sort of way, if we had to coin a term for it. And Clark Ashton Smith was doing a sort of lost continent mythology, which involves both continents in the past, like Hyperborea, and continents in the future, like Zosaki. And there were writers who just came in briefly into the Cthulhu mythos. And I think the unsung hero of the Cthulhu mythos is Frank Belknap Long, because he was the first writer to do two things. He was the first writer in the Lovecraft circle to bring in Arthur Mackin. He wrote a poem called The White People, which is based on the short story by Mackin. He introduced Mackin to uh, the writings of Mackin to Lovecraft, and then Lovecraft began to use all sorts of paraphernalia from uh, the white people and the Dunwick Horror and other stories. And the other thing that Belknap Long did, he was the first writer inside the Lovecraft circle who cross-referenced Lovecraft. He did it in a story called The Weird Snake, which not too many, most people think it was the first crossover was the Space Eaters but it, by Long, but it was actually a story called The Weird Snake about this uh, Middle Eastern goddess who was the head of a snake. And as a reference to Abdul Hazred, the author of the Necronomicon in that story. I know about that. Other people in oh, I, I think John should do his, his thing. This is one of the, one of the parts of his Durleth Mythos book that uh, he added in for the, the, the paperback that's out there, the long Lovecraft, long Lovecraft, which uh, I'd never, I was reading it, and I'd never heard of this, never thought of it. I, I don't know that I, I can go through all the, all the detail up here from memory, but uh, Long and Lovecraft met in New York often, and they spoke together, and there's a, a great deal of influence that Long had on Lovecraft, uh, particularly moving Lovecraft away from pure supernatural um, and in the direction of, of cosmic science fiction almost. It was Long's interest. And Long heard Lovecraft read The Color Out of Space. And I think if you, if you look at the stories that followed between The Color Out of Space and what Long was writing and culminating with The Whisperer in the Darkness, you see a series here. Uh, and you, you have to go back to the stories and track all of this, but Long, in, if you, the writers in uh, what is Long's story? The, the Space Eaters? Space, yeah, space eaters when yeah. they're talking about the story that, that the author was trying to write uh, and to create this, he was unsuccessful in creating this mood until the very end of the story, he's really talking about the color of space. He's talking about colors that can't be seen and everything else, and that's the story that Lovecraft had written. 
when you when you realize what happened to the characters in the Space Eaters and how they're besieged by something that's it's very similar uh, with what's going on with the color out of space. It's something that can't be described. It's a force. It has all kinds of uh, emanations, uh, different descriptions for it by, by whoever has seen it at the moment. Uh, and this is all going on. But you can follow the threads of, of the playfulness between these two men right up until the whisper in the darkness because the whisper in the darkness has the same, uh, it's almost like they had the same story idea and they both wrote their stories because the whisper in the darkness has the, when the cat, when the home that Akeley lives in is besieged uh, and it's, uh, it's remote and it's a farmhouse and even the buzzing versus the noise effects that it, that's in the space eaters. And of course there's the direct a correlation between uh, the Hounds of Tyndalos and the Whisper in the Darkness because Lovecraft mentions a couple different things from Long Story in that. Uh, but I can't recall all of this, but it, it's analyzed in the book and it kind of runs through all of these things and it just shows you how these how they played with each other. Ramsey Campbell, I think, was the first one that said that Frank Long is really the one who started the Cthulhu mythos as opposed to everything else. Um, and, and then Lovecraft really picked up on it when he, in, uh, that was in 1928, uh, but Lovecraft really picked up on it in 1929 when he on his own initiated uh, the Smith character into his the mound uh, and then immediately wrote Robert E. Howard that he had done it. He was so excited about it. There's a big misconception out there that, that uh, Lovecraft wasn't excited or that he was tolerating these people that were contributing to the mythos, but the fact is that he really enjoyed it he played the game with everybody, he loved doing it, and he encouraged it over and over and over. Yeah, yeah that would be Sethagua. Sethagua, yeah. Sethagua, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, However we say it. <laughs> just one thing, since we mentioned Sethagua, what happens with there is, there's this the story by Clark Ash and Smith floating around called The Tale of the Tampers, the Arrows, that got rejected by Farnsworth right initially, and eventually does get published in Weird Tales. But Lovecraft reads it. Lovecraft writes about it to Howard. Howard decides to include Sasago in his story long before it gets published, which is The Children of the Night. And Lovecraft also mentions Sasago in Whisper in, in Darkness. And then we finally have Clark Ashton Smith's story get published, which finally introduces this character to us. After the fact. Yeah. After the fact. <laughs> yeah, so the Lovecraftians point to the, the irony of H.P. Lovecraft putting Sasago uh, in print first, but the truth of it is that Robert E. Howard did. He mentions he is the first person that mentions Sadagua in the Children of the Night. I think this brings us then to a good point to discuss or talk about the basic question, which is then, what is the Cthulhu mythos? Uh, not so much a listing of gods or characters, but what are the themes of it? what role or what contributions were other authors who are part of this community, part of the game, if you will, making to it that made it different from what is sometimes referred to as the Lovecraft mythos. Are you asking me? Um, who are you let's asking? toss it out there yeah, for all you. Whoever can, out. <laughs> who's ever last the dust Speak the question? Up. You want to do it, Nathan? Nathan, <laughs> put you on the spot. Ah, thanks. Um. <laughs> what was the question again? Pretty long question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how does the what, what are the characteristics of the Cthulhu mythos that distinguish it from Lovecraft's own work by himself, the Lovecraft mythos? Um. For for me, I, I like I said, I'd have to I'd have to go back to what I was what I said earlier. Um, I think there's more of a Lovecraft put more of his personal political beliefs into his stories than the later writers did. So you're going to have maybe not individual characters, but certain themes that show up in his stuff as opposed to some of the later, at least the, the ones that I've read. I haven't read as much of um, the, the guys who followed him as I have Lovecraft himself. Um, but I, I think some of those themes, like I said, the, uh, this idea of the, uh, the great ones and this kind of oligarchical government that they have um, and the kind of emphasis he gives to where the, whether he's talking about the, the people on the mound or, or any of the, the other races, um, this kind of emphasis that he has on their social structure, describing that, taking the time to, to go into that, I see that more in Lovecraft than I do any of his, uh, any of his followers. 
Some people have said that the, uh, the social structure that appears in the mound and at the Mountains of Madness, among others, reflects a evolving political thinking of Lovecraft himself that's reflective of the times, particularly the Great Depression and the times that follow after that. Yeah, um, as far as his, his political thought, that was definitely, you can see this really pretty significant demarcation between when he was writing before the Great Depression afterwards. Um, I don't think it, it's not fair to really, he, I mean, he was not a fan of Bolshevism. He wrote extensively in amateur journalism about how he didn't care for Bolshevism at all. Um, but you see after 19, I'd say, yeah, middle of the Depression, 1933, he's writing with these themes where before he was talking about characters in a, in a past tense, and going forward he's talking about ideas that could that are implemented by these creatures and their societies that he actually personally thinks would benefit people now or his now as far as the Great Depression uh, he talks about issues of unemployment and, and social structure and everything um, he's a little bit more uh, I'd say before the Great Depression he has this kind of standoffishness this kind of aristocratic notion of, of who should be ruling and what should be going on and who's more important after that, he still has that. I think he, he never got rid of that New England aristocracy sort of idea that he had about himself. But with the Great Depression going forward, he kind of, I think, softened to a some degree in some of his stuff. Can I add oh, something, sure, Rick, go ahead. something to, to your original question? I would uh, distinguish the various mythos in these three ways. Originally, Lovecraft's mythos was developed in a somewhat unplanned fashion, somewhat contradictory, and we had a term in there called great old one or old ones. And depending on which story you read, they were either A, a group of aquatic beings led by Cthulhu, B, a series of invisible beings led by Yak Zothoth who were cousins to Cthulhu, C, a group of crustaceans from the planet Pluto, D, a group of crinoid beings from, who live in Antarctica, or finally, in a revision story called The Mound, a group of humanoids who worship Cthulhu, who live under the earth. He also worships the, the Sagwa, too. In the Durlitz mythos, they came, they came to be a loose alliance of Cthulhu, Sasagwa, Yaxosas, Durlitz creations like Ithaquah, who were all banished by a group of slightly morally superior beings, at, at the very least, called the Elder Gods. And then in most Cthulhu Mythos fiction, they're just a loose alliance of uh, ancient beings. Well, John, the words been dropped, the Daryleth Mythos. Well, yeah, I would, I, I, I really want to comment on what you said, and on what you said. Um, just coming back to your comment about the societies, Lovecraft kept showing more, more and more advanced and more and more perfect societies in his fiction, and the great race and the shadow out of time was his, his uh, best FDR imitation, I guess, uh, that you could possibly do. And these beings were so evolved and so far ahead of anything, they existed for so long. But the mythos never went away, that was still not his purpose. He did that because that's who Lovecraft was and how he wrote, but uh, these beings, uh, you learn that you know, two-thirds of the way through that they were men just like us. Uh, you start out horrified by them. But you are changed as the reader because you get two-thirds of the way through and now you learn that they're men. There's a point in that story where it almost sounds like you're waving goodbye at Disneyland because you're leaving the land of the old ones. And he says that and it's written in there someplace. Uh, and that's because they are just like us. They encounter the unknown at the end of that story, and that's still the mythos. There's a huge mythos story underneath at the mount, at the, excuse me, underneath at the mountains of madness, as well as the shadow of time, uh, which we would take a long time to talk about here. But the other aspect of of the origins of the Cthulhu mythos is, um, uh, I, I don't know that I can say that this is a fact, but we know that Lovecraft, at uh, about uh, just before he would have graduated from high school. Uh, had, I think they talk about it like it was a nervous breakdown, but he went through a period where he was not seen by anybody and he read voraciously and he read everything. And he, I don't think he recalls half of what he read during that period. That's all he did was read during that period. Uh, and now in 19, and he also wrote fiction which he threw away and didn't keep. 
uh, other than a handful of examples. And in 1916, he sort of starts to break out of this thing and he's writing poetry again and they convince him to write some fiction. Now for the next 10 years, or excuse me, for the next few years, everything that he writes comes out of his unconscious. It's all dreams. It comes out of his dreams. He, the, the, the Dagon or the Nameless City or, or uh, almost all of the poems are things that he dreams about and he works the imagery in. And it's kind of a neat cycle that starts here because he's, as he expands his, his, these stories and he makes these references, uh, I, I think there comes a point where he actually starts to recognize fiction that he has read before. He certainly recognizes Edgar Allan Poe. And there's one person that has never been talked about enough, but Poe's influence on, for example, the dream stories or the dream landscapes are, is much, much greater than Lord Dunsany. Lovecraft himself says that Dunsany influences only strongly in about four or five of the stories that he wrote. And all these other ones that we claim are Dunsanian uh, are really Poe stories uh, influenced by Poe because Poe's dream poetry from the poems and the introduction of the of, 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 of ghouls and uh, the gates of slumber and all this imagery is what he's got in his, there's more of Poe behind the dream landscape in Lovecraft than there is Dunsany. But ultimately, the origins of the Cthulhu mythos uh, because the origins of the Lovecraft mythos is in this stuff because it bubbles up unconscious, it shows up in the stories, he begins to recognize it, and now he references those authors in these stories. Then the difference when the Cthulhu mythos stumped, you know, that's what he does up to a certain point, then he refines his skill and he goes from just creating dream images to adding a lot of plot elements, but he gets to a certain point and suddenly he's got peer authors that are writing and, and that's where the Cthulhu mythos comes in. Frank Melnick Long in 1928 and from that point on, uh, that becomes the Cthulhu mythos. So instead of consciously thinking about the authors he read and, and or maybe unconsciously in some cases, now he's deliberately playing the game with these other authors. He's still writing his very best fiction. It's not to take anything away from um, his accomplishments, but he was enjoying himself when he did it. And there's a remarkable amount of evidence that we don't see very often that doesn't get highlighted in most of the Lovecraft criticism that attests to all of this. But uh, this does bring us to the role of August Derleth, which we have not mentioned much at this point. But after Lovecraft's death in 1937, his role is essential in preserving and developing Lovecraft's reputation. And many people say, uh, uh, it, it was essential in critically misunderstanding or misrepresenting what Lovecraft was about. So, you, what, you might, if you would, John. Yeah, let me just tackle that there. briefly because unfortunately I could talk about that for 25 hours here, but uh, I, I think just a couple things that are big misunderstandings about August Derleth. Number one is there's a tendency to look at the Derleth mythos fiction as a whole when in fact it was written over 40 years. His earliest stories were juvenile. Yeah. And, and somebody challenged me on that term because he was like 21 or something like that when he wrote it, but there really is no age demarcation for that. Uh, and August Derleth living as kind of a very bright person uh, in Sauk City, Wisconsin was very isolated and he was writing juvenile. Yeah. He was influenced by H.P. Lovecraft as well as many, many other people. but. Uh, those first uh, collaborations with Mark Shore, there's even a question mark that some of these concepts that we attribute to Derleth might have been added by Shore. They were churning these stories out within a 24-hour period as young people. They sat in the daytime and Derleth would outline the story, Shore would write the story, Derleth would come home from work and polish it. He worked at the canning factory or something, and they would send it in and try to get it published, you know, and they would play the game. They were earning money over summer writing a story a day. And, and so the elder god sweeping into the earth and all that baloney um, is, comes from that phase. And if you really look at the Derleth fiction later on, you don't really see that. There's a, then, then nearly 10 years goes by before he starts writing mythos again. Nobody talks about that gap. Uh, and, and these stories, you know, the ones that he was writing in the 40s, um, that's Derleth fiction. And he was writing Cthulhu mythos stories to make money. Uh, you know, and, and he wasn't... Uh, trying to write great literature or anything else, and he was writing mythos stories. 
uh, not continuing Lovecraft, but just writing his own, just like every other author. Uh, the real controversy comes when he starts writing the collaborations. There he was doing genuine pastiches. He was trying to emulate Lovecraft's style. Uh, he did it with the lurker at the threshold. He was doing it for, for numerous reasons. Uh, one, of, one reason was because Lovecraft was kind of fading in the marketplace. And, and this was a way to keep that name going. You know, it's one reason he did it. Obviously, he would like to sell the story. Obviously, he wanted people to think he was a good writer, too, and, uh, in that. But what people don't realize is that after Lurker at the Threshold, he did not write another story with Lovecraft's name on it until 10 more years had passed, in the 1953 or 50, whenever he started writing The Survivor. Um, and, his, his, uh, and there was many reasons why he began again then, finally. And, and uh, uh, the last thing to say about that is just that, that uh, well, I won't say any more about that. We'll just, uh, there's a lot to say about it. You can't shorten it up. But, uh, well, one of the uh, interesting things was... This might be my only moment to mention this. <laughs> this is, John said, oh, we won't have anything to talk about. I said, yeah, we will. So the Durlith mythos, which we're using this term, uh, Dick Tierney, Richard L. Tierney, coined that term for all practical purposes, yeah. definitively, in his, what, 1972 essay, The Durlith Mythos, which is about 600, 700 page, uh, words long. It's very short. And what happened was, in 1971, August Durlith died. Harry Morris of uh, the Silver Scarab Press in Albuquerque was publishing Nyctalops, and Durlith had died, so various people sent in kind of like little memorials about Durlith, and they had a letter column, and in the letter column of Nyctalops, Tierney basically wrote the essay, The Durlith Mythos. And then they were assembling, Mead and Penny Frearson were assembling HPL, which is like a landmark fanzine, and Tierney polished it up a little bit for them, and it came out and just instantly grabbed everybody's imagination. So that, that was a demarcation line. And uh, I was uh, in, living in St. Paul in 1975-76, so not too long after Tierney had done that. And he's like one of the, the main guy in the new wave then coming up of kind of the anti-Durlith, we can call it, Lovecraft scholars and critics. But the thing is, Tierney did not dislike Durlith. He, I remember one time we were sitting around, he's mentioning, like, this scientific thing is wrong in this story, and this, this is wrong in this story, and all this, you know, there are all these things wrong that he complains about. He says, but I'd still rather read Durlith mythos stories than anything else. <laughs> so, so you don't get that if you just come flat uh, to, to his essay, which, which I think is too bad. But uh, I wanted to mention that. I can mention a lot more, but we got other and people. Just, okay. and just as another comment, in his own stories, he does use Durlitz's creations and concepts, but he likes to turn them on their heads sometimes. Like he makes the elder gods just as evil, if not more evil, than the great old ones. While their well, true nature is a little more vague in Durlitz. Yeah, there's always the talk about the Christian mythos, because Durlitz says he sees the Christian mythos in the Lovecraft fiction, and of course it is there as parody or satire. You know, and he said, you know, he made a little blurb about the mythos, and he says it's there. But you don't find it in his fiction. It's interstellar aliens, uh, whether you like it or don't like it, 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 where is it in his fiction where you can criticize August Durlitz for writing Christian mythos-based Cthulhu mythos? It isn't there. It doesn't exist. It's in none of his stories. In fact, it's more in Lovecraft stories than it is in Durlitz stories. Are we ready for questions? Uh, I, I think we're getting to the point of we're running towards the end of time and we got questions coming up. A couple of people indicated an interest. Uh, let me toss the last question out here, which most people know is coming, which is if you could name your favorite or the best Cthulhu mythos story that wasn't written by August, or by August, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, what would your choice be? And we'll start with me. Uh, and I think if it was by one of Lovecraft's contemporaries, it would probably be The Blackstone by Robert Howard. I mean, it's a personal choice. Some people argue otherwise, and I go with, uh, but I go with that. 
If it's by someone of a later generation, I think it would be Fritz Leiber's A Bit of the Dark World, which appeared around 1960, 1962, which I think catches Lovecraft's feel of the cosmicism and just something lurking on the edges out there. Uh, better and more subtly than just about anything I can recall by other writers. Um, Rick. Okay, I'm also a Robert E. Howard fan, so although I don't, I won't choose the one you chose. I'll choose, I'll choose one that's maybe peripheral to the mythos. It's, called the, it's sometimes called the Secret of Lost Valley or the Valley of the Lost. And it ties into the children of the night. There's an ancient race in, uh, it's the same ancient race in the United States. And it's a little more depressing than the usual Robert E. Howard uh, mythos story. And if I were to say for a modern writer, I would go with Carl Edward Wagner's Sticks which is one of the best Mizzou stories I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, this, I, I could probably, you know, again, quibble between various stories, but again, back to hanging out with Dick Tierney. We were hanging out one day. I don't know if we were driving around in Volkswagen bugs or cemeteries or something. We were doing something. And we are talking about Clark Ashton Smith and his story, Ubo Sathla, about the whole cycles of life and how everything rises from the ultimate slime, returns inevitably someday to the ultimate slime. And, and kind of like with the, uh, uh, at the Mountains of Madness thing, you know, like they're human, you know, that, that concept. Tierney's just, just talking, he says, yeah, but people don't understand, Ubo Sathla is us. He says, wait a second, Ubo Sathla, U.S. Ubo Sathla is us! <laughs> so I wrote that up for Cryptic Cthulhu. It's like a page or two. Uh, a little, little, little thing to throw in. And then uh, of um, newer ones, and uh, I haven't read it in so long, I'm not even sure if it's mythos, but I think uh, T.E.D. Klein's The Events at Porath Farm, which uh, Klein had a chance to get it published in Year's Best Horror, the anthology that was then coming out from Daw, I guess. And, but they were only, uh, that was a reprint uh, a ma uh, book or a collection at the beginning. So he, he was desperate to get it printed someplace, so he gave it to Harry Morris for Nyctalops. He didn't have an issue with that coming out, so he gave it to E.P. Berglund from, for, uh, from Beyond the Dark Gateway, number three or four, and that's where it first appeared. And I think that's the best version. Then he touched it up a little bit for Year's Best Horror, I think he touched it up again, and then eventually it became the novel The Ceremonies. Big, fat novel. I think the uh, version in the fanzine is the best. No. Ready? John. Well, yeah, you were supposed to take one story, and you mentioned my story. <laughs> I like sticks. You know, I remember reading it in Whispers magazine, and it took me totally by surprise. You know, I, I, I read that. I, it started, for me, as a very literal story. And I, it finally dawned on me what's going on here, and, and uh, the references to Lee Brown Coy uh, in there and, and indirectly to Arkham House and all of the allusions, you know, but it still was a fun story. And if, if Carl Wagner uh, had an idea that the story was supposed to work on all those different levels, um, for me it did, and I just found that amazing. But I'm trying to think of another one since we're mentioning two, and it was uh, the one that uh, Turner added to, uh, as much as I like the original collection, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, the version that, uh, the edition that Turner did where he added the Gorek Zone uh, by... Uh, Lupoff. By Lupoff. What mm. was the, the whole title of that? I think it was in the Gorek Zone. Yeah, something, something, yeah. something like it, that. It's just an outrageously right. fun story, and, and it just a, a fun, surprising story to read. It's a delightful difference, you know, that you get in some of the better stories. Uh, so I would recommend that one. Um, for me, like I said, I haven't read as much of uh, guys after Lovecraft. Um, although when you mentioned the title, I, I did uh, I did like Lurker at the Threshold. I did like that one. Um, I did. I have read a couple of. Park Ashton Smith's work, but I can't remember whether I actually, I don't think I followed up uh, reading him anymore, so I must not have liked it as much as I liked Lovecraft, so I can't really say to him. Okay, thank you. We have uh, time for questions, maybe six or seven minutes, and uh, you had your hand up way early on, so. I'm so grateful to this gentleman here for bringing up the Dawsonian Poe story, because it gives me an excuse to ask you about another track of Gates of the Silver Key, 
which he wrote with Bloom Price. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I can tell. I can say a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my, my fiance here is a great Lovecraft fan, but, but somehow those stories escaped her, her attention, and I was we were reading. I was reading them aloud to her, and I was trying to remember the backstory. Why there's two versions of that? Yeah, I can do that one pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, Lovecraft um, was, you know, he's basically only had one potential market in Weird Tales, simplification, but pretty much true. And uh, in the 1930s, most people don't think about this. Uh, so Lovecraft dies again, March 1937, crucial, crucial time frame. In the 1930s, so this is the last few years of his life, Farnsworth Wright at Weird Tales doesn't use any new Lovecraft fiction for about five years. Okay, and so his his group of friends, like E. Hoffman Price, they're trying to get him to you know like do something, you know like well do this or do this and do this and do this. And so Price wrote the story that he thought would be a good collaboration with Lovecraft. So that's one version. And Lovecraft looks at it and goes, oh my God. It's not that he was, was objecting, but he, he found it kind of painful to try to you know, do what he did with what Rice, uh, Price had done. And so he rewrote it, and there's, uh, what, something like 300 or 400 words left that Price wrote? Oh, quite a few. Yeah, some, something like that. But basically, it's all Lovecraft. Like he rewrote it all. Some of the concepts still are prices, but the actual wording, there's only lines here and there, like, and hardly ever a full big paragraph or anything. So that's, that's your short answer. Just, just briefly, the yeah. price version is called Lord of Illusion. It's in Tales of the Lovecraft Mythos, an anthology edited by Robert M. Price. So I had an old At the Mountains of Madness by Arkham House mm -hmm. hardcover made in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And then I got the corrected version that came out in what, the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. Those are those two are different. So you're saying the more Lovecraft, the more pure Lovecraft. No, 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 they're they're not that, that, that's different. S.T. Joshi changed a lot in that. And we can debate whether he made the right decisions or not. So you're saying there's three versions. There's really yeah. a three. Yeah, I was talking about the two real versions. Yeah, what happened was, what, what, what happened was S.T. Joshi, some, some were spelling changes, and this I have a little disagreement with. I generally don't disagree with the changes he made, but he kind of short, Price did some revisions after Lovecraft did his major overhaul. Mm -hmm. It was mainly involving the Necronomicon quote in there. And... Like he had a reference to Children of the Fire Mist and it became the Wing Ones and the Joshi approved version. That's because Lovecraft originally wrote the Wing Ones and Hoffman Price changed it to Children of the Fire Mist, yeah. which to me sounds a lot better than maybe that's just me. But that's why there are three versions. I don't mean to cut you off. We got, we got five minutes. We got five minutes left, and just if you have a chance to stop, I want to tell you something about that story. Yes, I have a question for John. It's two part. One is, can you comment on Durless' misinterpretation of the so-called black magic quote from Lovecraft, and also his reference to the idea that the beings could be compared to elementals? Those are two very big questions again. Um, Derleth, I'll answer the second one first. Derleth was trying to incorporate the worlds of other authors into the mythos when he was writing his earliest stories. And uh, some of them that were not collaborations, uh, uh, like the, the thing that walked in the wind, and, and that Lovecraft was actually a participant in that story with Derleth. Uh, and Derleth was incorporating Algernon Blackwood's idea of elementals. Um, and there's quite a few references in Lovecraft stories to earth gods and things that are, are free to roam. And that's really what Gerald was picking up on. Uh, not every great old one is trapped on earth someplace, but they're, they're, they are able to move out. And Lovecraft makes all kinds of references to other things on this planet. In the Call of Cthulhu, there's a, a, a paragraph, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it says, you know, that, uh, 
things came out of the earth from the depths of the earth, or, uh, but they were not the great old ones, you know, but there was something else that was there also at the beginning when all these things were going on on the planet that still came to see people. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of references in Lovecraft's fiction. I, I'm beginning to incorporate that all right now in the book I'm writing now, you know, so I, I don't have them all at my fingertips, but there's a lot of evidence to show that uh, what Gareth was doing with some groups of his demons or whatever you want to call them uh, is roughly ba or loosely based on what Lovecraft was doing, and but he was also creating his own mythos. Uh, as far as the um, black magic, black quote, magic, the black quote. magic quote, um, I have a long section in the book, and I can't remember the chronology of all of this, but there's a number of letters that are lost, and uh, I never had a problem with the black magic quote when I when I went into the library in Madison, Wisconsin, and I got the entire letter that has the, you know, the, what he, what um, Varnese, I think his name was, yeah. wrote to uh, Derelith, uh, and you read that whole letter, I, I don't find it such a antagonistic position to what I see in Lovecraft's fiction, because there is magic in Lovecraft's fiction. These, we don't understand it as magic, we understand it as science and things like that, but how can you possibly read Dreams in the Witch House and not realize that there's, that's exactly what Lovecraft was doing in 1930, especially in 1930 when these letters were going. Uh, you got a sorcerer basically out of Innsmouth in, in the thing on the doorstep. Uh, we actually have references to spells being cast in, in the last story he wrote, The Haunter of the Dark. This threads, there's a, there's a two tiers of mythos stories that are intertwined that thread, all, that thread all the way through Lovecraft's fiction from 1926 on, and magic uh, and, and other components uh, of supernatural, interdimensional type stuff as opposed to the outer space aliens and civilizations are one of those two big great themes that he uses and crosses over. So I think very likely that, some, that the quote is fairly accurate or it's, it's based reasonably close on something that Lovecraft said. And just one other point too, there's a lot of people take that uh, all my stories are this or that or the other thing. Uh, Lovecraft made that as a rhetorical remark in the letter uh, and he's probably referring to all the stories I'm doing now or all the stories uh, that we're talking about or all that we've talked about in the past letters. I, I can't imagine that he could possibly be applying it all the way back to every single thing that he's written, which is the way that people interpret it these days. We've got to wrap it up. Sorry. Yeah. Out of time. Um, out of time, out of space. Or is that backwards? <laughs> out of space and time. Whatever John says, but the fact is we're getting the signal that uh, the time for the <laughs> panel is up, and the next panel will be starting shortly. So I'd like to thank our panelists and invite you for, to come to the Weird Tales panel tomorrow night, which will follow on the aspects of this topic. Thank you, Tom. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.